Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is Behind the Scenes. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. My guest today is Joyce Henry, who is head coachman and interpreter at Colonial Williamsburg. Joyce, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I started um, noticing some of the horses in our historic area and thinking that horses in the 18th century are almost like cars are for us today. They're status symbols. We use them to get jobs done. We use them for basic transportation. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the horse in the 18th century and the ox, of course, were the sole means of, trans of transportation other than someone's own two feet. Horses in the 18th century, uh, there were no native horses here uh, when the settlers first started arriving at Jamestown in 1607, so they did import uh, seven horses in 1610. Uh, unfortunately, those first few horses that arrived here uh, had been eaten by the colonists during the starving time. Uh, by uh, 1611, there had been more horses brought, and it had basically been made a crime to eat them if you got hungry. So the numbers of horses uh, multiplied. By the time we get to the 18th century, there's plenty of horses, and Virginians are quite noted for their love of horses, both uh, for just daily riding and for racing, which was the single most popular sport in the 18th century. So you must have had different types of horses for different types of jobs. Absolutely. And these early importation horses, uh, we believe, were of native Irish and English stock. We believe that they were good horses because it's expensive to ship a horse from England uh, to the colony. It's going to be about 15 pounds a horse. And this uh, shipping is going to be quite uh, hard on the horses as well. Uh, water was allocated for not just the passengers on the ship, but for the horses. And there are no special... Uh, there's not a special ship just for shipping horses, it's just room that's made and stalls put in. And we've got reports of many horses not making the voyages because of starving and running short on water and water uh, and supplies being given to the humans on board rather than the horses. You talked about the expense. How can we explain what a horse would cost relative to other things? You're asking how much uh, a horse would have cost in the mid-18th century. Uh, again, horses are plentiful. The average Midland planter, uh, you know, could probably purchase a horse for three to five pounds, all the way up to perhaps 500 pounds. Uh, if you're a, if you are a, a gentleman planter and you're buying a racehorse or importing a stallion from England to breed on your native mares, you are going to pay a lot of money for that horse. Um, so certainly, your status in society is going to depend on how much you're paying for a horse. Uh, it's if it's just a riding horse and you're a lower or Midland sort it'll be a less expensive animal. If you are a gentleman and you wish to engage in racing, which almost all gentlemen planters are, you're going to be spending a lot of money because you want to win. How can we compare that to, say, somebody's annual income? Again, in the 18th century, the average person who is a farmer, they're engaged in agriculture, uh, they are making anywhere between 10 and 30 pounds sterling a year. Uh, there's a few uh, other trades that are earning up as much as 60. Uh, so that gives you an idea. Gentleman planter, who's paying uh, 500 pounds sterling for a racehorse, uh, we're talking about uh, an ex a huge expenditure. Uh, it would be not even like a limousine. It would be almost like a private jet. What about your everyday sorts of horses? The everyday sort of horses is going to be, again, a crossbred. Uh, there really isn't outside of the quarter horse and the thoroughbred, which are starting to morph in the same breed, a real breed of horse that the uh, colonists are using. 
they can be used for drawing carts, they can be used for plowing, for light agriculture. Uh, they're going to be used for drawing chairs in the historic area. Uh, you're going to see, uh, besides being ridden, probably the most common form of transportation uh, for the Midland sort and, uh, and some of the uh, gentry as well would have been the riding chair, which is a single, single horse-drawn vehicle with two wheels that a lady or a gentleman can certainly negotiate themselves about in, much easier than hooking up a coach, which again, only the gentry own, owning a carriage in the 18th century, uh, a four-wheeled vehicle is certainly a mark of the upper class. They are status symbols, whereas a chair is economical transportation. However, we also know that Thomas Jefferson and George Washington did use chairs extensively when coming here. Uh, coming to Williamsburg. So you could put your little trunk on the back and have your belongings and your tack and you could drive your horse here. When you got here, if you needed to ride, you could put your saddle on and you could ride the same horse about. So horses are also multi-purpose. But as far as breeds, there are no outstanding breeds for the average person at this time in history. Talk to me about the approach to training in the 18th century. That's a really good question. Some of the methods we would consider today or we do consider today rather brutal um, because force is what they felt was the way to train an animal to be, to train them to your subjection, to do what you wished. Uh, as far back as uh, ancient times, there was a cavalry officer named Xenophon, who was Greek, who wrote a very interesting work on the training and gentling of horses, advocating a much gentler, kinder way of training horses. In the 18th, but this wasn't practiced widely because it's easier to just manhandle a horse and force him to do what you want. And this tradition, to a degree, exists today. But even by the 18th century in England, there was a gentleman called the Earl of Pembroke who wrote a book on the uh, training of horses and cavalry. He wrote a military manual. And this manual is uh, earth-shaking in, in terms of he is using for the first time what we talk of today uh, as natural horsemanship. And that's kind of a coined term, but it basically, the concept is training a horse by thinking like the horse, not like a human. So the Earl of Pembroke published his book and, uh, in 1770, and in it he's advocating, for instance, some things that are done uh, for practical reasons, but also fashionable reasons in the 18th century, to cavalry carriage and racehorses are the docking of tails, much like we do to a Doberman today. Uh, this removes from the horse his defense against flies. And he, Earl Pembroke wrote of cavalry horses being tied on the picket line. Uh, those with the, the dock tails uh, were basically thrifty, not doing well, because they were fretting and stamping at the flies. They couldn't brush off their bodies, whereas the horses uh, who had undocked tails were able to keep the flies off, they were eating, they were relaxed, and certainly did a lot better. He's calling these practices cruel. He's also talking about, he almost takes words from Xenophon saying, to train the horse kindly and patiently, let him understand what you wish him to do, and not to force him into subjugation because that would only, you know, have fear. What are some examples of um, how training a horse would look before the Earl of Pembroke and Xenophon, before natural mm -hmm. horsemanship is accepted? How did it look before that, and then how did it look after that? Let's say you took a horse in the 18th century, and you brought him in, and you just slapped a saddle on. You're going to have much like we see. Is the horse going to become used to it and go, oh, that didn't hurt me? 
No, he's going to stay scared because it's going to take a while. You're going to always have this mistrust that when the human walks up and puts the saddle on, you know, and, and then climbs on, everything in his psyche, his instinct is saying, I'm in danger. I'm a pretty, you know, I'm in danger, which is why in training today in a natural horsemanship, it actually goes well before we would never take a horse that was not quiet and start introducing him to something like that right away. We start with more subtle things first. Shifting gears a little bit, sure. what type of horses do we keep at Colonial Waynesburg today? We use lots of crossbreds. We call them warm bloods. They are quarter horse crosses. Some have some Percherons, some have some Clydesdale, some have uh, Hackney standard bred, uh, some are purebred standard breds. We use these crossbreds because they are calmer in demeanor. Remembering that carriages are status symbols, you wanted the fanciest, flashiest, most elegant horses to draw your carriages, gentry. So what we do is we cross, we buy horses that are crossed on warm-blooded uh, breeds or hot-blooded breeds, such as the standard bred uh, and the quarter horse, and you get what we call warm blood. They are slightly heavier built than a lot of saddle horses, however, some are not. And uh, we get the demeanor and yet we get the confirmation that we want for them to be elegant, presentable horses in the historic area. And we are putting more horses in the street as often as we can. Uh, we have chairs out, ladies and gentlemen driving the riding chairs about, and certainly we try to have as many character actors mounted as possible so people get more of the feel of how important the horse's role was here in the 18th century. Thanks so much for being with us today. It was my pleasure. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. We like hearing from you. Send us a comment at history.org slash podcasts. Check back often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.